This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. I'm Jenna Siri, the associate producer and a bookseller here at Barnes & Noble. And today on Poured Over, I am so excited to welcome classicist extraordinaire Emily Wilson. I know everyone remembers her incredible translation of The Odyssey, and she has done it again with the Iliad. She has captured the beauty, the grief, the rage, the wrath, the divine, all in this one text. And I am so excited for people to get to read it. So Emily, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. I can't wait to talk to you. So normally this is where I would ask people to sort of describe the plot of whatever they've written. But I think the Iliad works better in themes because the plot is the Trojan War, which, you know, is this massive conflict between the Greeks and the Trojans and the gods are all involved as well. But the themes here are so incredible. We've got anger, rage, grief, so many things all tied into one. So if you want to just set us up there, I think that'd be a great place to start. Yes. I mean, I love that you focused on themes that have to do with emotions, because I think people sometimes have the misperception that the Iliad is a sort of action story. And of course, a lot happens externally and people do a lot of killing and massacring and those sequences are very exciting. But it's also very much a story that's about um, emotions driving the plot and also about how do, how do individuals get separated from their communities and how might they get reconciled with their communities. So that theme beyond the, the wartime setting, the themes of conflict and rage and grief it's also about how individuals are separated and then reunited with their with their people. And there's some pretty big characters that I think many people would know in this. You have Achilles, of course, the famed hero with the heel. You have Odysseus, you have Patroclus, you have so many of these names that people probably know. Hector in Paris, of course, on the Trojan side. But these characters sort of work in this huge net of people and ideas and getting an insight into that and sort of starting to understand how they all work together is something that your version of the Iliad, I think, offers us in a way that we haven't quite seen before. I mean, obviously, you've been working in this field for a very long time and you have already translated the Odyssey to great acclaim. But when you were sitting down to translate the Iliad, how did that feel taking on this task yet again? It felt, I mean, it felt daunting because even though I do think that the best possible training for translating an epic poem is translating an epic poem, and I'd just done that. So I felt like I was in the, in the best position I was ever going to be in to do this. But I love the Iliad so much, I didn't want to let the poem down. So I felt that, the, that responsibility about doing this. And I felt also that even... Even though the Odyssey and the Iliad come from the same culture, um, they have the same poetic language, they're from the same era, who knows if they're by the same person, but you know, we, could, we could or could not get into that. They have all this affinity in terms of the mythic world and the poetic world they're in, and yet they're also so different. So I felt daunted just about um, how do I convey the ways that the, the whole atmosphere of the Iliad is very different, whereas the Odyssey has this very expansive geographical setting where Odysseus is traveling all over the mythic Mediterranean world and encountering all these cool goddesses slash monsters or monster goddesses and all these different peoples who have different food ways, like the Cyclops, with this particular food way. Um, 
Whereas the Iliad is set in this very claustrophobic world where it's all the time you're focused on the narrow strip of land of here's the city of Troy, here are the Greeks confined in their encampment, here are the gods bickering with each other on Mount Olympus. And we're always focused on those three communities and the ways they intersect with each other. So, And just in terms of the world, the sound, the intensity of the emotions, it feels different. And so I wanted my translation to feel different. And when you enter that world of this war, it's already been going for years and years. We're sort of towards the tail end of this conflict, and you can feel that weight of everything that has sort of come to pass already as you begin this book and the struggle that these men have already encountered and have already dealt with in many ways. And yet we start with anger. I mean, I always think when I was learning about the Odyssey and the Iliad, one of my professors sort of framed it for me like, when you, when I think of the Odyssey, I think of sing, because that's one of the first words. And when I think of the Iliad, I think of wrath, because that is one of the first words that we hear, that, that big wrath, that mm-hmm. divine wrath. And I think that so often that's what I come to when I think of this work. And maybe the people are drawn to the Odyssey because of its grand adventure and its grand scale. But I think the Iliad really offers so much humanity and so much depth for the the expanses of what this war was like. Absolutely, yes. I mean, so the first word in Greek of the Odyssey is andra, which means man. So it's sort of focused on a particular male individual, even though it's also focused on how does the story of Odysseus's homecoming intersect with so many other stories. Um, the first word of the Iliad is menin, from menis, which means wrath. So it's focused on this, this semi-divine kind of emotion, which is experienced by Achilles, but then is, makes Achilles, who's of course the son of a goddess, approximate to the condition of a deity in that his feelings have so much terrible impact on so many other people. And it's, as you say, about these enormous feelings and deities in, interacting with human beings. And in a way, it sort of shows you a different perspective on what it is to be human, because you're constantly c- contemplating the ways that humans can be almost like gods, and yet we're not because we're mortal and we lose things. And we, all of us, even the greatest of us, will lose almost everything. And I can't even imagine sitting down in front of this work that, I mean, that have been translated many times in the past. We have so many versions of these texts with, you know, varying flaws and high points. But to sit down and say, now I'm going to put my words to this, I think it's so important that we continue to revisit and rework and retranslate these texts because... I think it may be very easy to just say, well, we've got these great versions. We've got the Fagels. We've got the Lattimores. We have these, you know, other texts. Maybe we don't need to touch them anymore. And yet, as our society continues to change, we need to continue to look back and to rework these texts as well. So I'm so glad people are still putting their own on these. I'm glad too. I mean, I'm glad. I'm really grateful that I got the opportunity to do these Homeric translations and to do a different vision for how Homer might sound in contemporary English. And I guess for me, one of the big things that, that drove me was the, the, the knowledge that all of the major contemporary translations of the Homeric poems, including the Fagels and the Lattimore, don't have a meter. So they don't convey that regular music, which the original poems have. They don't sort of tell you in a sort of visceral, physical, rhythmical way, this is a poem which was strummed to a lyre and should invite the performance out loud because it has a rhythm that even if you're not thinking about meter, you'll be able to hear that in the words. 
I think of it like people always say, oh, if you don't think you like Shakespeare, you have to see it performed because it has so much more depth and you'll understand. And I think it's the same for these Homeric texts that if they don't have that that meter, that rhythm that meant this was a performance and there was so much more to it than just reading it on the page, I think it's easy to overlook some of those turns of phrase or those moments that convey more than what's just written on the page if you were to hear it performed like it was meant to be. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I think th there can be also passages. I mean, notoriously, there's a long list of the, all the ships of the Greeks at the end of book two, where all the ships are, are list listed along with the captains and the leaders of each ship. If you don't have a meter and you're not invited to read it out loud, it can look on the page as if it's just like a phone book. It's just a list of names. But if you read them out loud and you're, you can sort of take them into your body and feel the rhythm, then you can start to understand this is a list of the dead. It's a memorial poem. And this poem is, is not just telling you about grief, but it's also enabling you to feel whatever grief you need to feel to, uh, as you remember whatever you've lost. And I think, you know, there's so much about what makes a good translation or what makes an accurate translation. And I should say the vast majority of translations of ancient works have been by men, white men. And I think there is a commentary on bias, whether it's conscious or unconscious in translation and in understanding that I think is what merits so much revisiting of these texts of, you know, we have to understand whether or not they are consciously writing these, these thoughts and feelings of, you know, how do we describe the ownership of women in these times? How do we define the spoils of war, the rape that is inherent in many of these texts? The biases are really crucial to understanding that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. And, and I think there's both um, potential for bias and potential for just taking for granted however it's usually been done before. I mean, if, if a particular style of translation or a particular approach to how do we translate the language of captivity or the language of enslavement or the language of rape, if there's a, or, or even just the language of how do we make this poem sound grand and noble and poetic, if we have a particular set of assumptions about any of those things, it may seem like that's the only possible way to do it. And of course, it's not. There are many different, I mean, there's no right answer to how should Homer sound in English. There's no English translation, which is exactly the same as the Greek. That's impossible. So I think it's always worth sort of rethinking and reorienting if there is some other way to do it that's equally responsible and, tr and truthful. We should try that too. And I think it's also crucial because the farther we get from these times and the farther we move away from these texts, sometimes I think we lose some of that connection, even though when we really sit down, like when, when I look at the Iliad and you do a great job of uh, explaining this in your introduction, the structure, the different acts, the different um, groupings that these scenes, these that all come together. So often I'm like, well, of course, that's so similar to the structure of so much literature from this point on. And yet we don't know, we can't make those connections because at least in a lot of schools that I know, I mean, you don't learn Homeric epics. You don't, you might not get an option to learn about them until college. And maybe even then you don't see that even in like English literature programs. So I think it's so important to be able to understand that structure as we move forward and to learn how it affects all of our storytelling. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. And I mean, I think the Homeric epics are sometimes surprising to people who sort of think it's it's very old, so it must be quite primitive, or there must be a sort of linear, li linearity to the storytelling. 
which and if you sort of think about novelistic retellings of the Iliad, like Song of Achilles, which is obviously obviously a wonderful book, um, it sort of tells the story in a very linear way. Whereas the Iliad doesn't do that. It doesn't sort of start at the beginning of Achilles, here's Achilles as an adolescent, let's go blow by blow through his life story. It's very much not that. It's let's start right at the end of the story, when the last period of Achilles' life, and tell just a tiny little episode and make a huge epic out of a story that takes place over a month and a half. And so I mean, I think that what you started with, of this is a poem about the Trojan War, I think that's true and also not true, because it really doesn't tell you the whole story. It assumes you know something or other about the wooden horse. The poem doesn't tell, doesn't tell you that. You have to know as a background that that's what's happening. You have to know as background what's been happening in the last nine years. And it's demanding quite a lot of the listener to be able to leap into this narrative, which where you're starting in, in medias race is the Latin phrase that Horace uses in the middle of things is how epics traditionally start. And that's certainly true of the Iliad, that it, it's in a way a challenging work of literature, even though it's also, I think, quite clear in its storytelling about emotions and that it tells you as much as you need to know. And yet it also has these layers of the backstory and the, and the prequel, which you're uh, assumed to already know about. So I tried to sort of build, build the reader in, in in the introduction about the things you're assumed already to know. There is. And if if people like to research while they read, the Iliad is great because there are so many references to other other myths, other stories within these grand speeches that are given. I mean, Nestor references, famously long-winded Nestor references... Yeah many things and Glaucus in his story of his life and his sort of history and his heritage. You can get all these other um, offshoots of this entire world of myth through this one story. If you want to spend your time Googling a million other names and places, <laughs> it is a great place to start. You can absolutely do that. But I also I would, I would want to tell people you don't have to do that. And you can absolutely enjoy the poem without knowing all of that and without, ha I, mean, I, I, I wrote a lot of end notes, but you can skip them. You don't need to read the footnotes if you don't want to. You don't need to start with the introduction. You can. I, I mean, I tried to give people what they might need in terms of the glossary and end notes and maps and all that kind of stuff. But you can skip it if you want just to start with having a sense of the speeches, the characters, the stories, because the characters and their feelings are something that you can absolutely understand on a human level without knowing all of the backstories. It's a bit of a choose-your-own-adventure. There's lots of ways to read this, and I think all of them are enriching, and all of them are going to give you an incredible insight into this story. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, yes. I mean, as a translator, I guess I wanted to just to recreate something of the experiences that people might have had of Homer in antiquity. And we know that, um, that ancient people listened to the Homeric poems from childhood onwards. And this, the clarity of the syntax and the grippingness of the storytelling is accessible from, for people of any age. I mean, as long as you can stand some violence and gore and massacre in the, in the Iliad, which obviously should have content warnings about whether or not you want, <laughs> want to hear about spears going through bladders and eyeballs. But if you, can, if you can stand a lot of violence, then the Iliad is on some level accessible to anyone with any background at any age. Some of the most creative violence that I have been able to put my eyeballs Absolutely, to. Absolutely, yes. Every single part of the anatomy is going to get speared at some point or other at this point. And some points to be like, that can't be physical. You're, I'm trying to decipher angles Absolutely of not, it's even if it's not exactly realistic. Yes. It truly is a page turner. Yeah. 
even yes. when I didn't think it would, you know, you think, okay, it's got to be a little dry, whatever. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. You can fly through those battle scenes with right. so much, you know, interest and intrigue because there's so much there and you're still getting these interjections of the men speaking on the battlefield and rousing, you know, their comrades with these speeches mm-hmm. of, you know, don't feel fear and keep going. And you're like, yeah, me too. I'm in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's so much fun. But my, maybe my favorite part of the Iliad, what it offers is this insight into the personification of the gods themselves and mm-hmm. their connections with the mortals, their loves, their personal, you know, pet peeves, their fallibilities. And yet they're, you know, at the end of the day, they are supreme in these battlefields and in this world. And I think getting to see that and those interactions is something so fun for readers and for people who are maybe just starting to get into classics. Absolutely. Yes. I love the deities too. I mean, that both the Odyssey and the Iliad, the whole plot is structured around a, a goddess um, in the Iliad. Iliad, it's Thetis, who um, wants to honor her mortal son Achilles when he's been dishonored by Agamemnon, who's taken away the enslaved woman that he wants to enslave himself. Um, and so the, the sort of whole tragic plot of a, of a divine mother trying to honor her mortal child and actually only making it worse for him, because Thetis's plot involves the Greeks having enormous losses while Achilles is off the battlefield and Hector the Trojan manages to gain this enormous success. But then, of course, Hector kills Achilles' dearest friend, Patroclus. I, I mean, I am doing the spoilers for the Iliad here. <laughs> this is the spoiler of the plot, which I did not mean to do. But anyway, a little bit of a spoiler. Um, but that, that sort of tragic story of a mother who wants to help her mortal child and all she can do is increase his grief. Um, and inc- increase the, and, and bring on the time when his her short-lived swift-footed child will die. So that plot, but then also the counterplotting of Zeus, who wants to control everything through his misty plans, and yet he can't. And here and Athena, there are some wonderful scenes. This is a double doubling of the wonderful scene of Hera and Athena dressing up their um, majestic chariot to go zooming through the battlefield to slaughter lots of people, and Hera putting on her. Um, the sort of equivalent of an arming scene where Achilla, where Hera puts on her um, makeup and her best earrings to seduce Zeus, and it's the armor that you use as a goddess to create massacres by the arms of seduction. I think there are so many amazing divine characters, both goddesses and gods, and it's a lot of fun, even though it's also a serious kind of fun, because it's also always speaks to these serious issues of mortality and loss. It, I know there were so, so many moments where I was like, that's like almost funny. Like it is funny, but there is humor. But at the same time, then the next page, you're like, oh, and we're back to the battlefield. So it's not funny anymore. But Hera is yes. probably my favorite figure in all of myth. I think she is just incredible and the best. And there, she has so many incredible moments in the Iliad. My One of my favorites is also Zeus being like, Athena, I am mad at you. I can't be mad at Hera because this is just what she does. And just the idea of this is just what she does is my favorite. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Yes. And that connection, I think the idea in, in Greek myth, this idea that the gods have just as many fallibilities and just as many struggles as the mortals in many ways, that whether they love their half-mortal children and whether or not they can save them or 
you know, they love these cities and whether or not they can save them and how they interact with each other. It just adds such a, a layer of depth and interest that it it takes away from those moments of battle where you're like, I can't slot, like I can't put myself through hearing about another 700 people being speared. And then you get a little bit of a reprieve with, you know, Apollo or Zeus and it just all wraps together so nicely. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I think that's one reason to prefer the Iliad over the Odyssey is just that you get so much more of the complexity of the divine world and and the divine community with the various different scheming family members and the ways that Poseidon hates his brother's use and they've never really gotten along and the fury of Poseidon about everything and Apollo, and Apollo sort of always being a little bit distant from everybody. He's the god of distance. He's always firing arrows, but never actually being close to anybody. And the, the ways that Athena sort of manages to manipulate her father into doing everything she wants and the, the way that she wants to be the god of strategy even more than her dad is. I think there's just so much more of that sort of complexity of the divine um, community. And as you say, that you're, you may be on the edge of finding the human story just too painful. And then we're taken into the divine story. And it's it's complicated, but it's not painful in quite the same way because these characters are, are, are forever. I sometimes think that like, I'm, and there have been movie adaptations of different Trojan War, you know, pieces over the years. but. The Iliad itself, like if you could find a way to actually adapt and script out the entire thing, it is the ultimate action movie. It is the ultimate prototype for what is that incredible. There's so much tension, even though, like you said, spoilers. I mean, I think it spoils itself pretty early on what's going to happen. You know so much of what's going to come and that doesn't even ruin the tension. In fact, it ramps the tension up because you know the whole time who is doomed. And you read this whole time going, maybe, maybe by the time I get there, it won't actually happen. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I mean, it's, it's sort of extraordinary to me that it, that it manages to work that way. That, I mean, of course, you know, as soon as Achilles, as soon as Patroclus puts on Achilles armor, you know, he's not going to come back. And yet, I mean, every time I read that passage in book 16, I'm like, he's going to make it this time. It's going to be okay. Surely it's going to be okay. On the same way with Achilles chasing Hector around the city walls again and again, and he's almost catching up, and it's like a dream, and one person is chasing, the other person is always running. Maybe Hector's going to get away that time, and you sort of find, I find myself crying every time because I've sort of kidded myself, or the narrative has kidded me again, that maybe they could get away. I mean, I, I also think that in a way it's like an action movie, but I think it has a lot more layers than in, in terms of the psychological um, depths than, you know, Action movies vary about the, the degree to which each character is a fully realized character. I mean, I do think that in this poem, you always get the feelings and you always get, it's not death for special effects, even though, as we've been saying, there is a poetic virtuosity to the variation of the spear is never going to go into the same body part. It's always going to be, each death is going to be different. And yet you're also going to see that each death is a, is a human being who had a homeland and has people who are going to be weeping for that person who's died far from home. I mean, and in every single case, you have, a, have something or other that cues you into this is a human being who's lost, lost their life. And this is terrible. And so it's both thrilling and yet also you're sort of constantly having goosebumps over the horror of that. Especially with the amount of, I guess, friendship that is, in, is present between these men, the relationships 
the connection, you really become invested in, you know, I know that this person is best friends with this person or their chariot driver. And then when one is killed, the response, that overwhelming grief from the other and the the vengeance that follows, it's such, you become so connected to these characters, to these people, even though they're doing these horrific things, you're still mm-hmm. like, like I, the Ajaxes, you can, you know, they're out there, perhaps some of the most people, you know, committing these violent acts. And yet you are rooting for them every time something almost happens. You can't stop, but be help, but be like, and it missed. And then you can take a breath again. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, I, I, lo- I love also the way that the poem doesn't sort of invite you to judge and sort of say, oh, no, they're very violent. Let me scold them. Or it's, I mean, it's not, not saying um, we praise massacre and it's also not saying let's condemn violence in every instance. It's, it's putting you into the experiences of that. And as you say, the relationships are so fully fleshed out. I mean, I think we've talked, to, talked about the intimacy of comrade relationships between the Ajax or between Idomeneus and Meriones, the Cretans, or between, um, obviously, Achilles and Patroclus, which is the most in-depth, intimate um, battle comrade and um, deep friend relationship in the poem, the, the deepest love in the poem. But then we also have, of course, Hector and his family in Troy, the love of Hector's parents who beg, beg him repeatedly to stay inside the city walls and not fight so dangerously, not risk his life again and his wife Andromache and his little boy Astyanax, and that heartbreaking scene in book six where the little child starts crying, seeing his daddy wearing the scary helmet, and daddy takes off the helmet but then puts it on again because the, the, and, we, and we know the baby's right to be afraid because his daddy is going to die and the baby is also going to be killed. I think that scene with Andromache is so important to the understanding of the gravity of the situation that Hector knows what's to come in many ways, whether or not he is hopeful for a different outcome, really, no matter what happens, everything in their lives is about to be drastically changed. And to say to his wife, you will probably be enslaved. You will probably have this terrible future, but I have to do what I have to do. And especially Mm -hmm. since we get so little outside of you know the divine there are so few female characters that make any appearance in this story and to have that be that that crowning interaction of Hector and his wife is so heartbreaking because you just expand it out to all of the women that are in that town and it's a lot all of them all of them except for Helen who of course will get to get home and have a happy ending I mean, I also think that you're right that that there are far more, um, we get far more of the goddesses, Thetis, Hera, Athena, even Iris, the rainbow goddess, I think is also an awesome character. But the, the poem also ends with three female voices. It, it ends with the with the voices of of Helen and Hecuba and Andromache, the voices of, the, of lament for Hector. So even though the, a lot of the poem's action centers on the emotions and battlefield activities of warrior men, it it leaves us with the ones who are going to be alive after all the men have killed each other, which is these women who are going to, for the most part, be be taken as slaves and be left to grieve. And so much of the story is hinging on women in general. I mean, Helen, obviously, is how this all begins, Aphrodite, all of these, you know, people that set off these 
interactions, but also the women in the Greek camps that are being sort of traded back and forth and maybe saved and maybe not. And it all hinges, all of these interactions between men sort of hinge on their relations to these women. Absolutely, yes. So the whole sort of premise of the quarrel between Achilles and Agamemnon is over these two enslaved women, Chryseis, who gets returned to her to her father, who's a priest of Apollo. So it's a sort of bit rare instance of a captive who gets returned back to her home, which doesn't happen elsewhere in the poem. Otherwise, captives are just enslaved for life. And then Briseis, who does have a voice in the poem and grieves for, for Patroclus when he, when he dies, and has, has we, we sort of know a little bit about how Briseis feels about everything, but we also know that she's never going to have her freedom again. And those are, you know, I think sometimes what people focus on being like, oh, this is so primitive. This is, you know, these warring cultures. But on the grand scale, the the feeling of the emotions that you get is so transcendent of these like smaller interactions that you do feel the in the entirety of the work, the scope of what is really there. Absolutely. Yes. And I mean, I guess I also feel that, you know, we're not so sort of quote unquote advanced or non primitive that we've got over conflict or partisanship or I mean what the possibility that um sort of emotional like intense violent emotions can drive people to want to destroy their neighbors or destroy their friends or destroy their communities and there's never been a human cult, human moment in human history when war hasn't happened, but also even beyond wars, the amount of violence that there is. You know, even even in the United States, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of grief. I mean, those things are not have not gone away, even if we don't necessarily want to talk about them that much. The, I think the Iliad gives us a language to talk about those terrible things, which are still with us. I think that also leads me to my my like grand thought always, which is like everyone needs to read the classics. Like I I have so many friends who they're so into literature and they love reading, but they've never really made it to Homer. They've never made it to the Aeneid. They've never made it to sort of these big classics. And I think it's because so often people have this idea that they're inaccessible or that they're not, you know, there's too, that's too much work to sort of endeavor down that. But I think the reward is so great for understanding not only the structure of literature as it would come, but to understanding these themes that we're still grappling with today. Absolutely, yes. And I think people sometimes have a perception that it's kind of going to be boring at a slog, but Homer is not boring. It really is not. I mean, as you were saying, it's a page turner and it has so much action and so much emotion and so many fascinating characters that I think if people sort of give it half an hour and see if you still want to keep going, and I think you will. And I think your translations of, of all of them that I've encountered have that spark that grabs you from the very beginning. You can feel it when you read with the rhythm and the sort of the repetition that comes, but it's not boring. It's not like rote. It's not reciting. It's It all works as these building blocks to create and to understand these characters in this world that is very different from a lot of the contemporary literature we read, but the echoes are still there. It's still so connected. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I, I guess I, I, a lot of my sort of daily work as a translator involves sort of trying to make sure that I um, am both 
being truthful to the sound and the emotional experience, but also being truthful to the clarity and the quick pacing of the originals. But the originals are not at all boring. They really grab you and make you sort of feel things in your body and your, and your feelings. They make you feel excited. They make you feel angry. They make you cry. And I sort of wanted to have the reader of my translations um, have something of that quick pace and that full body emotional experience, which I think some translations expand too much or don't work hard enough to make sure the English is clear if the Greek is clear. So I, 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 mean, I think it takes some work on the part of the writer to make it a relatively easy, smooth experience for the reader. That if you just plonk down whatever the dictionary says, it's not necessarily going to flow in the way that the original does. I mean, translation is an art in and of itself. I can't imagine, you know, I've seen these original texts that get created into these beautiful, clear, concise works where you can say, I feel good about having, you know, the connection to that original text because most people will never be able to read and understand ancient Greek or Latin, but they can still feel that visceral connection to the text. I think that's so important. There's such a feeling that comes with Homer. I know it's very alive. That's all I can say because it was meant to be performed. Absolutely. Yes, I completely agree with you. And it's this whole sort of paradox that a poem which is so much centered on death and so much centered on the vulnerability of the mortal body that we're always coming back to. There are so many ways you can die. It could be through your neck. It could be through your eyeball. It could be through your buttocks. It could be through your liver. And we're, you could die at any moment on this, in this environment. And yet it feels so alive where people are moving all the time and feeling things all the time. And you as the reader or listener are, are always feeling things and always feeling more alive for having to contemplate these moments of life before death. And that, that whole terrible paradox is so urgent in the Iliad in a way that I think is not true of any other book of literature that I know, that urgency and sense that this is a necessary and central story. And now with the sort of rise in mythological retellings in, you know, there's so much fiction that is not only about just this era of myth, but just, you know, uh, retelling ancient myth in general. But I wonder so many times, like, this is your, this work, your translations of these works are such a great entry point for anyone who's read Song of Achilles or Circe or these other texts, um, Ariadne, anything of those sort of natures. Now it's such a good time to step into the real original text and to just gain so much more knowledge and then go back and read Song of Achilles again and it'll completely change your perception of those works. Absolutely, yes. And I think you can, read, reading them alongside each other, you can sort of see the ways that, that Madeline Miller or Pat Barker for The Silence of the Girls, that they're, they're drawing on the original Iliad and they're also doing something different and you know, there's a different kind of creativity that a novelist has in reinventing and remaking the story for a different a different audience and a different artistic product. And I think for the reader, just living in this age of, as you say, multiple different mythological retellings, it also shows the ways that people are eager to sort of turn back to ancient literature and reinvent it and reconsider what might it mean in the 21st century, which is maybe different from what it meant in 1950. And especially with, with like Greek myth, there is any, any type of genre or anything that you read you can find a, a type of myth or a type of story that correlates. I think so often I'm tr I try to like lure my friends in to be like, no, you do like myth. I promise I can find one for you. One time Apollo killed his boyfriend with a Frisbee. And then, <laughs> and then that lures them in if I say funny so sentences. But 
There is just so much. And then I, I hit him with the, but it's also about every human emotion that there's ever been. Uh-huh. Yes. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> you get him. And then that's the thing. I mean, I think that in these times where we experience so much tumultuous existence in our political structures, in our social structures, well, that's always been happening. And people have written about it and how they yeah. got through it and what happened there. And I think sometimes we need to look back to sort of understand and to connect with the, the greater humanity. Absolutely. Yes. I, li- I like that you brought up the ways that it both overlaps with today. I mean, the political tumult and the rage that we- that's there in our society, certainly there in the Iliad, and yet it's also alien and that you can sort of see both the points of similarity and the points of difference. I mean, I guess another thing that I think about a lot in, is, as a difference and similarity is the ways that our culture is so obsessed with celebrities and so obsessed with like who gets to be famous, who gets to be the best, who gets to be the one everyone's staring at and learning about. And in a way, the Iliad is also about that, right? It's about this society where, or set of three societies that are obsessed with particular individuals who want to be the best. The most famous warrior is Hector. The most famous warrior is Achilles. And how can they sort of perform their famousness in the public eye? But then the sort of trap of the public public eye, which pushes you into a performance which might not be a safe performance at all. Um, and, you know, the, the risks for a Homeric warrior of being the, be- the quote-unquote best, obviously, are, are different risks from the risks of modern celebrities or modern celebrity culture. But I think there's a sort of resonance also with the way the Iliad treats um, honor, glory, fame, success, victory, and those sort of themes which have this terrible dark underside of the possibilities of loss. Every time I, I think I've worked through all the ways I can look at the, the texts, I find seven more where I'm like, or I, I find someone else <laughs> who's commented on it a different way. And I was like, how did I never think of that? How did I never see those connections? It never ends sort of all of those interwoven themes. And as time goes on and our society changes, it will only continue to sort of rewrap itself around each other and create these bigger moments, these bigger themes. And something I guess I want to know, because I could never do what you've done, and I could never translate these works, and I think most people are probably pretty in awe of that, but as you're writing and as you're doing these things, is there ever anything that surprises you? Do you ever find these moments of, like, I didn't think that that would happen, or a favorite moment that you come across while you write? I mean, I I love doing it. I love just that process of rereading the Greek over and over and over and over again. And I mean, in a way, it's the favorite moments are things like what I was already talking about of just realizing, wow, I've read this a hundred times and it's still making me cry. How can that be? I don't know how that happens. Um, I mean, I guess also as a translator, as opposed to if you write an essay about the Iliad, you can focus on a few scenes. You don't focus on every single line, every single word. And I think I have a new appreciation for scenes that I might not have thought about that much before that process of sort of having to wrestle with, I'm not going to just read fast over this bit. I'm going to spend just as much time over this bit as every other bit. So, for instance, um, the sort of semi-comic scene where um, Idomeneus and Meriones have gone back to the camp to get new spears and they have a sort of, my spear is bigger than your spear and let me do that. And it's kind of hilarious, even though it's also just a sort of few lines of comic respite within a sequence where there's a lot of death. But I, I don't think I'd ever sort of paid attention to that scene sort of properly until I 
was translating it. And similarly, I think I had always thought book 23 with the funeral games, Achilles mourning Patroclus obviously is heartbreaking and amazing. But then I w- I, I'm not particularly a sports person. So I'd always sort of thought, mm, chariot race kind of fun, but it's not really for me. And in the course of translating it, I thought, wow, I love this chariot race. This is the best <laughs> part of the Iliad. It's great. And maybe I am a sports person after all. This is the best sports writing I've ever encountered. You know, it's wonderful. Yeah. And just the way that you sort of get, get to see the characters and see the whole themes of competitive society um, and the, the performance of success and loss and what does it mean to get a prize and who deserves which prize and who, who counts as the best in, by which category. The whole themes of the poem uh, recur um, with, without the death in the, in the funeral games. And I, I just love that. It's great. I think that's absolutely what I love the most is just finding something new every time, every or finding a new character to sort of follow along and to put, you know, maybe not too much empathy into because they're probably not going to make it through the <laughs> whole thing. But you never know. Maybe you'll get lucky. Yes. But I... I'm so thrilled that this new work is coming out. I'm so thrilled that people will have a new way to connect with the Iliad, with Homer, with this entire world of myth. I can't wait. The Iliad is out now. Also pick up Emily Wilson's translation of the Odyssey. You won't regret it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I can't wait for people to read this. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. To help other readers find us, please rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts.